0: I'd have to say probably the earliest memory that I have of a, of a cross burning would be um, there was a uh, a black man and a white woman that were married to each other, and uh, they were living in our town, and so uh, uh, several of us went by and made a cross and went by and put it in their yard and set it on fire. When the clan makes a cross, they wrap it in rags and soak it in kerosene. Is the way, you're, uh, the, way the, the correct way that they did it. Then you set it on fire. That way, uh, it burns for quite a while before it goes out. Whenever the clan would do something like that, you didn't stand around and watch it. Uh, uh, you know, watch the cross burn. You just put it on someone's line. Light it on fire and get gone, you know, because I mean, if uh, you get caught, you know, you're going to go to jail. You do it in the middle of the night, you do it in the dead of the night, and you do it quickly, light it on fire and gone. That's, that, that's the way that the Klan did things back when I was a kid. Now, see, when the Klan burns a cross on someone's lawn, it's a little different from when they burn a cross at a rally. That is their symbol. And they stick around and do that when they're standing around in a circle, generally, and they light the cross. They say, Behold the fiery cross, the old symbol of Christianity, signifies Jesus is the light of the world. Through him he removes all darkness and hail the white
1: race. So what about electric crosses? It seems to me I found some information that uh, the Klan also was, would use, especially for their own meetings, they would use electric crosses. Did you ever see anything like this? Yeah,
0: well, what, what the Klan done is if, if it's too cold outside, then they would come into someone's home or to a meeting hall, like a lodge hall or wherever they would have their meetings, and they would have a wooden cross that's erected on a stand. And it would have Christmas lights strung around it, like white Christmas lights strung around the cross, all the way up and down, and, and, and you know, it, it to cover the entire cross and plugged in. And they light it that way, and then prospective members must kneel at at that cross, or they use it as a if they're going to just do a, if they're not even if they're not swearing in prospective members, uh, they would have a cross lighted that way, and what that's what uh, some people would refer to as the electric cross.
1: But if you were a, a prospective member and you were ready to join, you know, this organization that you were, you know, all excited to 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 kneel down before the fiery cross, and you opened your eyes and you're just looking at a, a string of Christmas, you know, I, I could think that might be that might be a little uh, let a, a little bit of a letdown, no? The
0: idea of someone joining the clan is pretty sinister anyway, you know, the reason that someone would join. I don't think that they would be too concerned with whether it's done with a cross that has Christmas lights stuck around it or, a cro- or the fiery cross out in the pasture somewhere, you know. Uh, I think that what's, what's important to the Klan is getting someone to take the oath to join the Klan. Because the oath of the clan, what they call the naturalization ceremony, that's when someone goes from being a prospective member to a full-fledged member of the clan.
1: What kind of cross did you get?
0: I had the one with the Christmas lights stuck around it, and I was sworn in, in inside of a um, inside of a, a home uh, by the Imperial Wizard himself. When I look back on any of that, I look at the whole symbol of it as a Christian now. I look back on it as a symbol of evil, as a symbol of Satan, you know, because it is a symbol uh, where uh, the, the cross sets mankind free. And when, and when, when the cross is on fire, uh, to me personally, it's evil because it is Satan trying to destroy what sets mankind free. I'm not going to insult your intelligence and tell you that uh, when I gave my life to Christ, uh, you know, I, I jumped up uh, after saying one prayer. I jumped up and I said, man, I see the cross differently now. I see black people differently. They're my friends and I love them. They're my brothers and sisters. And I'm going to call up Sidney Lopper and Michael Jackson and sing We Are the World with them. You know, that's not what happened. Okay, I had a whole, uh, I had to get my mind renewed. I still had prejudice. I still had racism. I still saw things different. And I had to quit reading all of that junk that i've been reading all of my life i had to burn my clan robe i had to get rid of all that clan paraphernalia you
1: I burned it you burned I, it i
0: sure did really i, sure did. I burned my clan robe Um, I burned my Klan robe, I burned Klan paraphernalia, I burned Klan books, I had Klan posters, I had uh, Klan knickknacks, you know, you name it. I had a big, I built a bonfire, and I threw all of that in there. I rebuked it off of my life, and I said, I want this to be no part of my life whatsoever. My whole journey in life was all about the cross. I burned the cross, and, and now I've gone to preaching the cross. On my Twitter page is the cross, uh, uh, the cross of Christ with the Holy Spirit dove uh, going and floating across the cross, and it's a symbol of uh, it's a symbol of Christianity, uh, symbol of Jesus Christ and what Jesus did for me at Calvary with the Holy Spirit dove coming across it, which is the spirit of peace.
1: So today then, if you see a cross with Christmas lights on it, say, on, on someone's lawn at Christmas time or, or at the mall, does this bring back memories of your clan days?
0: Sometimes it does. I, I, I'll be standing in church, and uh, sometimes you know they'll, they'll be singing a hymn <laughs> And there's a song that says, At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. You know, sometimes I'll hear them singing that, you know, and, I, and I, I, the memories come back, you know. And I know it shouldn't, I mean, because it, it's, a, it's a good, clean beer song, and they're certainly not singing songs about the KKK. But, um, but you know, the whole idea, uh, when, I, when, I, when I sing a song, At the cross, where I first saw the light... I mean, of course, I'm going to have some bad memories. that's going to pop back into my mind. But the thing to do is that I, I just, when that happens, I just go on and, I, and I, I just pop it right. I do my best to pop it right out of my mind and concentrate on Jesus.
2: Every day I wake up, and I have no idea what I'm going to do with myself. I've been unemployed for months now, and right now my boyfriend's supporting me. I don't know how much longer that's going to last, though. Like, who wants to be in a relationship with someone who makes applesauce during the days and watches Gossip Girl? Every night I log on to Craigslist. And though I haven't really found any promising jobs worth applying to, I did find Lenore. She had posted an ad in the personal section looking for people who wanted to sell her their gold, like gold jewelry and gold coins and teeth and stuff. And I started to think that this is something I could do, right? Like, I don't know if I'll ever have a job again. The word recession might just mean long, slow slide into the end times. And that's why I asked Lenore if she could meet me and give me some advice about buying and hoarding gold. We met at the mall.
3: Hi, Andrea, I'm Lenore Rappel. I'm a real estate broker and people probably would like to nail me to a cross somewhere. Why gold? Why gold? Why gold? Um, for, for the listeners out there, what a great gift for a child. Maybe an ounce of gold at $120. What, um, a child's television or Wii game is probably far more than that. but. That's, that's the item that we'll appreciate, that's the item that will have some value in the future. Because pretty soon all of the money you could spend on Wii games, electronics, aren't going to mean much when people need to eat. Um, everybody is basing things on the dollar. Well, if the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank... Decides the dollar is passe, and no one wants our dollar. That's when we'll see the crash. Then everyone's going to want to bail out of dollars, and when that happens, and it's we're on the we're at the edge of the cliff now. It could happen. Uh, then, then what will you use? What will you use to buy food?
2: I guess super. I I think of like World War One Germany. So like a supermarket cart full of dollars. Will
3: that yeah. buy me food? Hyperinflation, and then, and then nothing. So. Go to get thyself to the coin store and buy an ounce of gold at $120. What do you do with 20 20 bucks? There's a couple drinks you know, for a young person's night out. It doesn't last long. (laughs) I know what you young people do. (laughs) Um, So tell me about the moment where you
2: decided to cash in your 401k and buy gold.
3: Utter disgust. I was watching... What was it? it? I I might have watched a film clip on YouTube, maybe Peter Schiff, and I just thought one day, what am I waiting for? What am I waiting for?
2: Just so you know, I looked up who Peter Schiff is. He was the economic advisor to Ron Paul's 2008 campaign.
3: This is scary stuff that we're talking
2: about. Are you afraid? Like, how's your outlook for the future?
3: I worry. My, my, My outlook for the future is very scary because, um, Right now, the dollar is at four cents. We don't know what the inter what the International Monetary Fund how how they play in the whole scheme of things. If the dollar crashes, which it might, China owns a lot of our debt. I mean, I yeah, like eight hundred billion or something. (laughs) I right, and I don't think anyone, everyone hears different figures, so no one really knows how much of. The United States is indebted to China, but we know that they own us. What if they get tired of financing us? We're the consumers, that's all we're doing. We're consuming, we're not making anything, we're not creating anything, we're not exporting. So what if they get tired of financing us and they call us on our debt? Then we're screwed. Yeah, then we have to go into our own gold reserves. But what if our gold reserves aren't all gold? There have been rumors that our gold reserves have our gold-plated titanium. We really don't know unless we demand from our Congress and our Senate that they do a um, forensic audit of our mint. Well, I, I, don't,
2: I don't know if I told you this, but I lost my job in New York, um, I guess, in, uh, in September and then moved out here to Illinois. And and I find the job market here is is even more dire than it was in New York City. Um, I'm I'm not seeing anything posted. I look every day. Um, I mean, where do you think jobs should be created for someone like me? Where do you think I should be going now?
3: I'm wondering if lighting, right now the government is really big on fluorescent lighting for the homes, but fluorescents have mercury. So how healthy is that for you?
2: You're talking about those eco-friendly bulbs? Yes, I, I
3: don't think they're that eco-friendly, not if they have mercury in them.
2: Oh no, because I just moved in this new apartment. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have, I got all the fluorescent bulbs because I thought it would save me money.
3: Yes, it is, but it, let's say a, a plane hits your building. Guess what's going to happen? All those fluorescent bulbs, all that vapor is going to be in the air, so um, running out of the building you could be ingesting um, mercury, which is not healthy for you. That's interesting. The thing is, LED lights, they're probably the best, but right now they haven't developed the LED bulb for your lighting, internal lighting. Like if you wanted to read, you know, put a light bulb in your lamp and read, the LED bulb would be perfect. It would produce—it would take a lot less energy to operate. We have to start from the ground up. We have to come back to, producing our own goods.
2: The next day, I called the coin shop. But an ounce of gold is over $1,000 right now. And I went to Craigslist, too, to the job section this time. And I typed in LED, light bulbs, sustainable light manufacturing, terror-proof bulbs, anti-terrorism manufacturing graduate certificate program.
1: Over the holidays, I went home to check on my father. Not something I wanted to do. Every year it seems to get worse and worse. Every year he seems to get further and further away from the things that are most important to him. We've never been close, and about five years ago, he decided to become a born-again Orthodox Jew, which was kind of the last straw. This is when he became a total alien to me. My mom, who was Jewish, is a born-again Christian, and dad was an altar boy as a kid. So maybe if they were still together, then I guess it might actually be kind of funny. But he is not with anybody. He is totally and completely alone. He's been living in squalor in this run-down basement apartment for the past 14 years, ever since wife number two kicked him out. About two years ago, he almost got evicted, and that's why my sister and I are now paying his rent. This actually doesn't bother me. When I was in high school, I stole a very important wine bottle from him, and I drank it with my friends in the parking lot. When I send his landlord a check every month, I think about how sad he looked when I lied to his face about it. Last year, the trip home almost killed me. I had totally become the parent. We went to Costco to get basic necessities, we went to Target to buy new clothes, we got a cleaning service for the apartment, I took him to the welfare office to sign him up for food stamps, and I paid his bill at the kosher deli where he'd run up this giant tab. My dad has never been good at paying bills, he just throws them in the trash. That's why the phone bill got shut off about ten years ago. He's also run up thousands of dollars in credit card bills, but his paychecks are so small now they can't really take much from him. He used to do okay managing this delicatessen, but currently it's a downhill spiral. For a while he was gathering shopping cards from the parking lot at the Home Depot, and now he's working the night shift at UPS. Of course, he says that getting up at 4 in the morning to take the bus to lift boxes at UPS is great because it gives him time to think about all his ideas. My father has always defined himself as a man of big ideas. And this is why I am such a fan of little ideas. Because having listened to someone go on and on and on about ideas that never amounted to anything, I've been totally scared to take on anything I can't do myself on a laptop or with pen and paper. There is one tactile connection I do have to my father, though. Books. Like my father, I have a lot of books in my apartment. And over the past few years, I've been trying to keep our conversations focused on stuff he's reading rather than the idea stuff. And come on, reading is certainly an act of doing. My father lives near a Barnes and Nobles, so he spends a lot of time there reading all the magazines and the newspapers, and he looks at all the new books. Of course, he can't afford the new books, but there is the library. Besides the few times he buys a phone card, the only time I really hear from my father is when he emails from a computer at the library. So. On this last trip, we once again go to the Target, we once again go to the laundromat, we once again go to the welfare office, and we once again go to the kosher deli. But this time, we also go to the library, because my father lets it slip that he can't check out books anymore, because he owes the library money, like a lot. This, I find incredibly tragic. I mean, how can you be a man of ideas without a library card? So I drive him to the library, and we go to the counter, and the librarian pulls up his records. It turns out that my father owes a mere $60. Late fees, of course, but late fees from 1999. So that means he hasn't checked out a single book in like 10 years. I do not pay the library bill. I want to, but I realize that it actually isn't something important to him. And if there's one thing I have learned from my father, it's that you gotta keep your eyes on the thing that is most important. Edward Bertinsky is one of my favorite photographers. His latest book is called Oil. It collects over 200 images that he's taken over the past two decades. He was in town a few months ago for a show, and I got to sit down with him and ask him just how he became so obsessed with one thing.
4: The moment happened in 1997 where um, I looked at you know what I was doing as an artist, and I was photographing a lot of the mines out in in um, the wilderness, so to speak, where we get all our materials from: iron ore, copper, all of that, nickel, and the scale and speed at which that taking from from nature was was um, kind of, in a way, shocking. I had worked in those industries, but I had never really fully comprehended the scale that uh, that, that was at work, and then. What occurred to me was that obviously what's changed is, um, you know, when I was born, there was two and a half billion people. And today there's uh, close to seven billion people moving towards nine. That kind of exponential growth is what has happened in my lifetime. And that growth is fueled by bio oil, I thought, and that Ultimately, if we the green revolution was an oil revolution, it was a black revolution. Really, it was the machinery on the land, the the transport to get it to the cities, um, the pesticides, the fertilizers, all are you know derivatives of oil. And then I kind of thought there wasn't anything I could actually set my eyes on from the road to the car I was driving to the camera I was using to the things that I was photographing had all been touched by oil in a big way. And I thought, well, how do, we, how do I get to that landscape? How do I begin to talk about this invisible thing that we don't actually ever interact with, but yet it, it uh, affects everything? My earliest photo is, uh, is the refineries. I actually started with refineries and then went to oil fields. So this is from the early refinery series. So these were um, images that I thought, you know, here are these kind of m- massive industries that have been created that we never really get to see. And uh, this kind of, these organ pipes, but what they're doing is they're not playing music. They're making, uh, separating crude oil into usable components. So I thought going into those kinds of places and trying to uh, make a series of images that that somehow uh, describe the refinery was, was, I thought, uh, an interesting beginning. And then I went to the oil fields after that.
1: Bertinsky's photos of oil fields and refineries make up sort of a baseline to his oil project. But he travels with his camera all over the world to car lots in China, ship graveyards in Bangladesh,
4: used tire fields in California,
1: and Las Vegas.
4: I got interested in Las Las Vegas because it was the fastest growing suburb in the United States. And uh, there were several reasons for that. One being um, it it was a lot cheaper to buy a house there in, in in one of the burbs and people could sell their homes in California for three times the price and then and then pocket some of the money and come to, uh, to to Vegas. At the same time, because of the gambling and the amount of tax that comes from there, their property taxes are some of the lowest in, in the United States as well. For these reasons, um, people were flocking to Vegas to, to buy one of these houses. But when you actually look at what they're buying into, it, it, it's kind of a bit shocking in that they are reclaiming, parched desert and they're you know building these you know little you know boxes on this desert Um, and in this photograph I'm showing this big open pit gravel pit right next to the suburb and it kind of blends two series together which is I did a whole series on quarries and then I did a whole and I've been doing stuff on suburbs so they're they're both kind of linked but again it's this kind of endless um, you know suburb to me that was the you know That was the importance of the image in, in that this kind of um, lifestyle can only be achieved through the automobile there, the, and through cheap gas. If you start getting into the $4 a gallon, 3 dollars $4, $5 a gallon, this suburb is no longer a viable thing. And to service this suburb, if you look at some of the images, you see... No corner stores, no dry cleaning, no, no there's nothing that services this area. You have to get in your car and drive five miles or four miles to get to these things. So unless you like riding your bike a lot, or if you need a quart of milk, you've got to go you know, you know, three, four miles, uh, it's not very uh, um, conducive to a, a, a kind of a non-car lifestyle. For me, the most amazing pictures are the ones
1: that show the racetracks and the motorcycle rallies. There's one at the Talladega racetrack where thousands of people are cheering this giant truck with an American flag on it. It almost has this religious sense to it. Maybe, as Bertinsky told me, this is because these are photos of the last days.
4: Well, the the Talladega image, as is the uh, one at Sturgis Motorcycle Rally, and um, the Iowa 80, which is supposed to be the world's biggest truck stop, where they had a truck beauty pageant, and you know Bonneville Speed Raceway uh, on the Salt Flats. All of these images are really gatherings. Of of people, where at the core of their gathering is the is the internal combustion engine, whether it's through speed or whether it's through showing off a paint job like the the truck beauty show. So, and I thought, well, this is a, a period in time where where we're at this kind of frothing peak of oil, where it's just you know at this endless supply that we don't we can't see the end of it. And yet, I thought that making these images are a kind of um, uh, something, postcards to the future, so to speak, that when, when, when oil was plentiful, look at what we did with that. You know, this, is where, this was our oil party, so to speak. And so, so it was from that pers- perspective that, that I made those images because it's really, quite frankly, I can point my camera on anything and say that was on some way, you know, created by oil. Uh, but these are actual events that, uh, at their core, sits the idea that, that, that you know, speed and the machine is fun, and, and driving it with oil is, is an exciting kind of prospect. So, um, so I thought that you know, in 50 years, these kinds of events m- may no longer be viable. There is only so much oil under the ground, and once we get it, you know, that's it.
5: My name is Desmond. Desmond Ayimabwaji, and uh, I live in Sweden. Originally I come from Ghana. But I lived in Sweden for about 20 years. Uh, after having had uh, my education in England, of course, I've been also to the USA and uh, studied also a little bit in Africa. But I've been living in Sweden and then have been working as a researcher doing research. Uh, my books are published um, uh, on the internet, uh, Lulucom. What I have been able to do, and which I'm sure that uh, either now or later on in life, people are going to uh, discover, is that people usually find ways and means to go to war because they want to go and steal. There is always something that they have in mind that they want to steal. And this is what I call stealing covert order. You like something in another country, you are there to steal first There is a kind of stealing and you covet. You have a covetous uh, attitude towards that. So you take those things and then they become yours. Uh, It has never been made clear to the world about this disorder, that it is not something that we could take it lightly, but it is something that is wrong. It's a disorder that human beings have to go to another land, steal or kill the people and take everything that is there.
1: So, obviously, in the history books, you, there are many occasions where, you know, one group of people have gone into another uh, group's land to take something, whether it be gold or oil or, or land itself. But you, are you saying then that it's not really about those things? It's actually a, a, a mental illness?
5: It's a kind of illness because I have used uh, an illustration from uh, Abraham, uh, who had been the founding father for the, for the, for the Jews, uh, that uh, he, you know, through the scriptures, said that he was just standing somewhere and uh, looking at an expanse land uh, lying somewhere. And then uh, that very night that when he slept, he had a dream and he was told that if he could follow him, then of course his God, uh, that very God, or his forefathers, God said that I'm going to give you all this uh, property. And this has been a style which many Europeans took those days. People could dream about something and he said, "The God has given it to me, the next day they take a weapon and then go and kill somebody. And I mean, you as a, a, a DJ now, let's reason about this. Supposing somebody should do something like that, you dream about something that your God said that you give you the property of another in a, a neighbor, and the next day you don't wait for this God to find a way to give it to you, but you go and kill this person, and take his property. Supposing we should take this to the law court, what do you think will be the the, the result?
1: I would be in jail.
5: Yes, because I mean, in the, in the world of scientists, dream is nothing but just imagination. You know, sleep imaginations. What do you, what goes on in the daytime could in the night, you know, appear to you in different forms. So you cannot base your conclusions or even facts. On dreams, they are nothing, I mean, in the world of science. So this is the whole thing about war. Wars were engineered by sick people, sick men. I have made a very, very strong point there somewhere in connection with, uh, you know, the, the, the coming of religion and so forth. And in the same kind of situation that we see, that those people who became founders of these important religions that we see in the world, they, in modern terms, would have been put in the psychiatric ward. So the whole thing is about illness. It's it's mental illness, something that has deceived the world for, or have been kept away from the world for a long time, and this time it has been able to be unveiled through this uh, discussion that I've done, and the uh, articles that I've presented.
1: So so Desmond, now that you've discovered that the secret to understanding war is mental illness, how how have your theories? Uh, been received. I know that you've you know self published your book about this, but how how how, do, how has this message been received by others when you you know written articles?
5: That's a very interesting uh, question. You know, usually you know as academician, the usual way should have been to send these uh, articles to uh, journals or scientific journals. You know. But I discovered, uh, I mean, at the time when I was writing this, uh, that these are uh, messages that should be sent to the whole world for people to ponder over it. Uh, I had some uh, letters sent to me, two, two occasions uh, that maybe I could come to uh, Oprah. You, you could just well, imagine oh, I have about yeah. 21. Uh, is, is it over now? No,
1: no, no. I'm just saying that my question is about, like, how, how does the theory become practice?
5: I mean, these are very tangible theories that should be accepted either now or later. I mean, as an academician, I know that uh, there is a, a saying which is that a theory is only accepted when the, 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 the one who propounded it is dead.
1: So Desmond, let's think to the future then. Let's say that uh, you've passed on. How do you imagine, you know, your theories being put into place?
5: Uh, the Medication.
6: You know, when it first started, I, d- I didn't know what was going on. I thought mosquitoes were getting in. Um, you know, the weather was warming up. I really kind of wanted to have the window open for some, you know, cool air, but I was getting bit all the time. So I had to shut the window. I had to turn on my AC all the time, but somehow they were still getting in. So then I, you know, I decided to get some tape, and I taped up all around, all around the windows wherever it was loose, and I, you know, I put extra tape around the air conditioner, you know, because there's always a little gap there when you put the A.C. through the window. But I was still getting bites. And the, and these were the craziest, itchiest mosquito bites, you know, I'd ever had. And they're, they're all over me. And I was just scratching and scratching and, and putting my hand out of my shirt and scratching and reaching down and scratching and everybody was noticing and, you know, and I just, I just tried to, I had, really needed to stop the itching so I was, I was going to the bathroom like every 30 minutes and I had this little, you know, like zipper pouch with all these different creams and like, you know, calamine lotion and, and I had, you know, and I had cortisone and I was just putting it all over me and then, you know, putting my clothes back on and going back out and trying to get back to work and then it was, it just, it was just horrible finally you know one night i was i was getting into bed and i was you know i was grabbing the can of off and spraying it all over myself and and, then realizing how insane this was and and just somehow you know that that you know that little nursery rhyme or whatever it, it came into my head you know sleep tight don't let the bed bugs bite i i lifted up my mattress and they were everywhere my bed is is a futon on top of a platform with a little uh, wooden railing that goes around the perimeter to keep the, the, the futon from slipping off. And the bugs were everywhere. They were in all the cracks. There were just dozens, maybe even hundreds of them. I, I, just, I just dropped the mattress, I grabbed my laptop, and I went into the kitchen. So I Googled bed bug, and just all this awful stuff just popped up. They, they inject their saliva into you that has an anesthetic. And an anticoagulant. Then they stick another tube inside of you, and they're sucking your blood out. And and, and it just goes on like this. And they they molt, and they they grow, and then they mate, and then they breed, and it's it's just horrible. And they don't even even have normal sex. You know, the the male uh, has what's called a, a hypodermic genitalia. And he pierces the female and ejaculates into her body cavity. I mean, you know, even, even their sex is disgusting. So I, I was totally freaked out. I just closed the laptop, um, and I went under my sink. I got some old road spray. and I just started spraying everywhere. I, I don't even know if I was hitting them all or not, but I used the whole can. There was a cloud of road spray in the air, and my eyes were burning. and I was coughing. I just, I just didn't care and and then then I decided you know w- you know whatever bed bug had not been killed by the roach spray, I was going to bury him alive. so I went into my closet and I got some wood glue and I had some polyurethane, and I went to my bed and I put the glue in every crack, I completely sealed the bed it, it, it looked like plastic furniture from the sixties. it was completely smooth, and then I glazed it everywhere with the polyurethane so Whatever bed bug had survived had just been, you know, completely entombed. When I finished all that stuff, I took my mattress out to the street and, and, you know, then I I went back up to my apartment and I just grabbed my sleeping bag and and, uh, just, you know, I crashed on the kitchen floor. In the morning, I woke up and my back was hurting, you know, but I was just, you know, so excited that, that you know, I, I had solved this problem and I was going to, you know, be living like a normal person again. But then I realized something was biting. me. I, I jumped out of my sleeping bag and I unzipped it and, and this bug fell out and just just ran and it hit in a crack in the floor and disappeared. The whole floor in my little apartment is made up of these standard oak strips. And there's a crack between each piece of wood and the next piece of wood. And my apartment's not even 500 square feet, but there's probably a quarter mile of these crevices in the floor if you line them all up end to end. So I spent like six hours online looking for some kind of solution. And there's just so much information out there, it's it's overwhelming. There are so many websites, and there there, there are forums, and there, there, they're just you know, claims and counterclaims. They, they, people talk about chemicals, and well, you can't even remember all their names. So there's natural stuff. There's diatomaceous earth or something like that that you that you drop down, and the bed bugs are supposed to crawl through them, and they, they, their bodies get cut to bits. There's companies that come by with uh, steamers to, to kill them with heat, and there's companies that come by with nitrogen and kill them with cold, and there's, there's companies that have dogs that sniff the bugs and, and tell you where they are. And they, they sell covers for your mattress and your pillows so that the bugs, you know, can't get in and can't get out or something. And they had these uh, sticky traps you can put under the feet of your bed so that the bugs, you know, get, get caught as they travel around. Apparently bed bugs had almost disappeared in America, but now they were back and they weren't going away. And people were posting all kinds of theories and how they made the comeback and and what to do. There were very strange things on the internet. There were there were posts about a secret military project in China. Supposedly, their psychological warfare guys were breeding bedbugs and they were using operatives to secretly spread them into the homes of Western targets like um, U.S. trade negotiators. And and by the time the U.S. negotiating team would arrive in Beijing, they would be covered in itchy bites, and they would be so distracted that the Chinese would have an overwhelming edge and just eat the Americans for lunch. And, you know, supposedly that the Chinese were, were so successful with this that the U.S. was forced to retaliate, and they, now they had their own operatives doing the same thing. There, there were these really strange things that were being posted on these forums. Uh, eventually, I was so overwhelmed, and I gave up, and I just posted a plea for help. I went to this website called bedbugvictim.com and I, I created a username called LonelyBytes and I, you know, gave all the details of my situation. In less than 10 minutes after I'd posted my problem, I got an instant message from a user named Condor who spelled his name in all caps. I'm just going to read your exchange. Condor. Hey. LonelyBytes. Hi there. Condor. I do bed bug treatment. One application, 100% guaranteed. Lonely Bites. Okay, cool. How much and what is it? Condor. Older product, works great, $500 cash, no more bugs or your money back. I'm available right now. Lonely Bites. Wow. What do you use? Condor. It's DDT. Lonely Bites. BRB. Everyone knows DDT is illegal and nobody uses it anymore and it, and it kills everything it touches. But I wanted something that would work and I wanted something now and I wanted the bed bugs gone. Um, apparently it was used everywhere in World War II and, 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 and it's why bed bugs almost disappeared in, in the United States. There's even a group of right-wing types who say that environmentalists are responsible for millions of black babies dying of malaria in Africa every year because they're not allowed to spray people's cuts with DDT. But then I also read that that these bedbugs are resistant to DDT, and and they became resistant way back in the 40s. So what did you do? Well, I'll read you the rest. Lonely Bites, can you get here by 4 o'clock? Condor. See you there.
7: My name is David Feng and I'm one of the uh, more active Twitter users in Beijing and um, what I do is I, of course I tweet a lot, but also I blog. I blog with City Weekend about the city of Beijing. When I got myself the uh, first iPhone it was like about um, early to mid-December 2008. In the day, they made a huge distinction between uh, if the phone was from Hong Kong, from Italy, from the US and stuff like that, and I got one of the uh, totally unlocked phones. So I inserted my uh, China mobile SIM card and uh, yeah, it just started working. But once I got the iPhone, um, the really big thing about the iPhone was just the ability to tweet in any language and to take photos anywhere and to combine that all together. It's more about using it with Twitter and really showing people what's going on, you know, like um, what's going on in my life as an example. So I'm one of those people that, um, that has to have an iPhone on me all the time. In fact, get this, it's okay if my plain vanilla phone, which has my main number, is, you know, um, off the wires, as in like it, it's, it's, it's not on. But if the iPhone is not on, well, I'm well. I realise immediately because I can't tweet. To be quite, you know, to be quite honest, um, comparatively speaking, I probably don't know anyone more addicted to the iPhone than I am. For example, I can talk from, from actual real-life experience. It actually means bringing the iPhone onto the dinner table and starting tweeting in front of, like, everyone else seated there because you feel bored. Like, when I was, like, because it's New Year, so I was, like, uh, with with my family, and I got really bored of a conversation, so I pulled out the iPhone, launched, um, launched a Twitter client, saw no, saw no new tweets, retweeted something, and I said, this is boring, even my Twitter, so I went into maps and started looking at different airports in China, which ones were designed really, really badly. It's, it, it's like, I default to Wikipedia if I've got nothing better to do. So, um, a couple of days back, I was reading how they built Terminal 1 at Charles de Gaulle Airport, and uh, frankly speaking, I think I just simply think that thing is just ghastly in terms of design. So I was looking for ghastlier still airports anywhere in China, in Taiwan. And it actually turned out that all the airports I took a look tonight were actually built pretty okay. You know, when the conversations at the dinner table do get boring at you know some of the family reunions, which does happen quite a bit here in China, where the family's big, then, uh, well, to me, then all you do is you pull out your iPhone and you just simply start doing your stuff. So, um, the whole idea that you've got the internet in your pocket, by the way, I'm not doing an ad for Apple, is uh, its is, 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 is pretty much something. And if you have, like, a VPN, it gives you the whole internet with no sensors. what i basically see in terms of the iphone in china is that it will suddenly grow out of its mobile phone and text messaging roots and become this internet device with a phone it's 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 putting it the other way around so which is what which, which means the the mobile phone bit is the the core the big thing the internet is just pretty much like an extra wing now what the iphone's doing is it's making the internet the big thing it's making the internet you know the massively new terminal, and it's making a phone, you know, just like one of those like, um, things that you can have or you can choose not to have. So I think that's going to be something that, that, that we're going to see for the iPhone, especially in China, uh, because we also have a lot more internet users. Already right now, I see lots of iPhone users, especially in the uh, subway network. And I uh, also notice a lot more like um, iPhone ads all over town. In fact, like, um, I've seen iPhone buses, complete stations decorated with iPhone ads, decor and stuff like that. So the iPhone is really, really making it big.
8: Tracy Johnson and I grew up in the South Bronx and I guess my favorite memory has to be just hanging outside with my friends. There's a guy that cool DJ Kirk who claims to be the first guy to scratch on wax and one day he was out there and you know all of a sudden he just started playing something on the boom box and my best friend who even though he battles and people know him from battling is not necessarily the most outspoken out there guy and he just went out and just started rapping and everybody was just feeling him and we were just like wow is that really j bug out there rapping in front of all those people so yeah i guess you know just like just the support of that moment and i don't think i'll ever experience anything like that again so when i tell people where i'm from i guess for me it means a place where kids can actually be kids people could be creative and there's not a sense of censorship that we usually get in our everyday life. So lately my neighborhood or my old neighborhood <laughs> is being called Sobro and I think it's just hilarious cuz one minute it's the South Bronx, the the detriment of society where like all these landfills and jails are being put up. And now that is Sobro, it's a place where you know they're going to have plate meals and they're going to be, you know, people jogging. (laughs) And it's it's good and bad because at one point it's also going to be all the stuff I wish I had when I grew up. I'm just not going to be able to be there (laughs) to enjoy it. So now all the buildings that I remember growing up are now being turned into condos. And even in my building that I grew up in, my parents just got a notification that it's going to be sold to this big developer. And at first, You know, we took our super's word for it, that he was just going to be a new developer, everything was going to be exactly how it is. But now, of course, now that the new guy is in, he's pretty much just telling us that either we buy our apartment or we can leave. So my dad was having trouble doing the old-fashioned way of going out and and looking in the paper, trying to find an apartment. So, of course, he turned to me because he's not very computer savvy, and he asked me to go online and see what I can do. So I've been looking online, doing a lot of research for like the past two weeks, and (laughs) what I found is crazy. Basically, there are all these websites out there devoted to people who have nothing better to do with their time than to sit down and start talking about how much each square inch is going to be. And I'm just like, um, yeah, what about the people that lived in the building that was there before? You know, it's like not even a building anymore. It's just this business deal that they think is, you know, either going to be lucrative or not lucrative or going to be better for the people that bought it or not better for the people that bought it. And they're not thinking about the communities that they're that they're destroying. So, you know, I'm trying to concentrate and find, you know, where we're actually going to be living. But I got so distracted looking at these websites, you know, like brownstoner.com. I actually found a post of people talking about my exact building. So me being the naive, you know, person that actually lived there, I just, you know, sort of mentioned, you know, hey, what about families like mine that have to leave? And you wouldn't believe the comments that I got back. For everything from get your blank behind out of that neighborhood, if you can't afford it, then leave. I mean, this is like real hurtful words. Like these people are not playing. You would have thought it was someone trying to invade our our earth. Like they were seriously just angry. And for what? once I started seeing all this crazy nonsense that was going on I stopped checking the website because honestly I just can't be subjected to that but two days later I got this email from this guy telling me that he can help me the email is from this guy calling himself Condor and you know he spells it with all caps, and, <laughs> and he's like this, well, sounds anyway, like this super spy, you know, fanatic guy, and he has a crazy plan. He wants to go out with bamboo straws and target all the people that wrote on my post and put bed bugs <laughs> under their doors, and he says that will solve the whole gentrification problem in my neighborhood, and we'd all just be able to live happily ever after.
1: So are you going to write him back? (laughs) This episode of Too Much Information is called Most Precious Thing. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen, Andrea Salenzi, John McBride, and Marilyn Williams. It featured Johnny Angel, Ed Bertinsky, David Feng, Desmond Aimoboji, Leonore, John, and Tracy. Check out the TMI show page at wfmu.org for even more Too Much Information.